2: Welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode in our special series, A Seat at the Table, where we, with each episode, look at the life of a cabinet member, I am joined by two very special guests today, Michelle and Lucy from Tutoriferous. For those of you who don't know Tutoriferous, I'm going to let Michelle and Lucy talk about their podcast, but they um, just started last year, I believe. And it has been a great series thus far. If you haven't listened to it yet, I'm going to let them tell you why you should listen to Tudoriferous. But first of all, welcome, Michelle and Lucy. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having for us. Inviting us.
2: So tell us a little bit about Tudoriferous.
1: Lucy, you want to take uh, it away? Yeah, okay. Um yeah, it's a podcast that looks at lives in the Tudor era. And we're doing it by season. So we are working our way through Henry Seventh at the moment, and we've chosen, there's about 50 people in Henry the Seventh's reign that we thought were interesting enough to do, and we put their names in a box, and we pick them out at random, and I choose the ones that Michelle researches and tells me about, and, she, and vice versa, she chooses the ones that I tell her about. And so far, it's certainly been fascinating for us. I hope it's been interesting for everybody else. We've learned a hell of a lot. And it's been great fun. And some of it's been very surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we've become quite revisionist. We hadn't, we hadn't intended to, but we have. We seem to find out things about all these people. That's completely the opposite of what we thought in the first place, which is uh, which makes it far more interesting for us and I hope everybody else.
2: Well, and as a listener, I can say it has been fascinating thus far. What I love about your podcast, it's something that I love about podcasting as well. Not only getting to explore characters that folks may know a bit more, but getting to know something that you didn't know already about them and kind of understanding their role in society and culture and government, but then also the characters that, you know, the folks that folks don't really know anything about. And I love that y'all try and do a deep dive, try and get into these characters what makes them tick, why were they important, were they important. So I've really enjoyed it, and I highly recommend it to anybody listening. I think if you're a fan of presidencies and you want to go a bit further back in history, Tutoriferous is just for you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so with that said, let's dive in. We are going to be exploring the life of a cabinet member As usual, I have not shared with Lucy and Michelle who we are going to be talking about today, so this is the first time that they will be hearing that we are going to be talking about Oliver Walcott Jr.
1: Oh,
0: him. Completely unfamiliar with that name.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I would actually be surprised if you said that you knew Oliver Walcott Jr.
1: (laughs) I think you can assume ignorance on my part. On most things, actually, but certainly
2: (laughs) on this. (laughs) Well, and if it makes you feel any better, most Americans have not heard of him either. But (laughs) there is quite a bit to discuss about him, surprisingly. So let's dive in. First of all, Oliver Walcott Jr. was born on January 11th, 1760 in Litchfield in the British colony of Connecticut. Now, I know this is going to come as a shock since he's Oliver Walcott Jr., but he's the son of Oliver Walcott Sr. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Laura Collins Walcott. So Jr.'s grandfather, Roger Walcott, had been a colonial governor in Connecticut in the 1750s, and his family on his father's side dated back at least three generations in Connecticut. So this was a well-established family in Connecticut. His grandfather and father were both born in Windsor, which was the first English settlement in the colony. Now, Walcott Sr. had fought in the French and Indian War, as it's commonly known in the U.S., or the Seven Years' War, as it's generally known in Britain. Though he had studied medicine for a bit, Sr. did move to Lynchfield to become a merchant, and he became the sheriff of the newly created Lynchfield County starting in 1751. So, our Oliver Walcott Jr., he was the second child of Oliver and Lore, and his older brother, also named Oliver, Passed away very young, unfortunately. I know that is so confusing.
0: Why would you name them the same name?
2: Well, and and we see this from time to time you know, a a child will die very early on, and the next one that comes up, they'll give them the same name. But yeah, it is very confusing, and especially in a family that carries forward the same name generation after generation, it can get quite confusing when you're looking (laughs) at the family. trees. (laughs) trees. <laughs> yeah. So because the the first child had passed away very young, Oliver Walcott Jr. really acted as the oldest child to his three younger siblings. Now, as you may know, there were some tensions between the colonies and the British government. And as those increased, Walcott Sr., the father, was appointed as Commissioner of Indian Affairs by the Second Continental Congress, and he would serve in that body starting in 1776. That was also the time that he began a military career. As was the case with William Bradford, who we discussed in an earlier episode of the special series, Walcott Sr. and Jr. would both serve in the Continental Army during the American Revolution. So you have father and son both in the Army at the same time. Sr. served as a militia officer Then in 1776, the governor of Connecticut named him as brigadier general in command of all the state's militia regiments in New York at the time that they were a part of General George Washington's force. So this was still very early on in the Revolutionary War. Did they serve with George Washington then? So Senior did. Senior would go on to fight in the Battle of Saratoga, and then in May 1779, he was promoted to major general. Oliver Walcott Sr. is ma- really making a big name for himself. And as if all of this wasn't enough, he was also one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. So Oliver mm-hmm. Walcott Sr. is really involved in what's going on during the Revolutionary War.
1: So how come people don't know the name? Was it just Junior they don't know? Or is it, I'm just wondering why Americans don't know the name if he signed the Declaration of Independence? Really both. All right.
2: And and that's the thing, like, there are those signers that just aren't as well known. They didn't necessarily become nationally prominent. And as we, will, as we will see, though Oliver Walcott Sr. was a big name in Connecticut, he wasn't really as much on the national scene after this period. Now, Junior, he, he takes a little different of a trajectory, and especially with his military career. So his military career was not so illustrious. It lasted only a couple of years. And it was so, there was so little apparently that he did. I couldn't even find what his rank was. That's how little there is out there about <laughs> his military career.
0: It was so successful. <laughs>
1: it was <have> illustrious.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, we, we really don't have that much to say about his military career, but his non-military career is where he really makes his claim to fame. Oliver Walcott Jr. graduated from Yale in 1778 and went on to study law. And he was admitted to the bar in 1781. And so this is definitely a time when we see through American politics, prominent people start as lawyers, get involved in politics. So They
0: almost all do, yeah. don't they?
2: There are lots of lawyers.
0: <laughs> the only one I can really think of, right at, oh, was it Jackson Taylor? I'm Taylor? trying to remember which one didn't. They went through military, but weren't weren't a lawyer.
2: I know that William Henry Harrison was not a lawyer. Um, Harrison, George, that's the one. George Washington wasn't. He started as a surveyor. So right. there are there are some cases here and there. But we do see lots and lots of lawyers. (laughs) But, you know, he he was admitted to study the law. And after this, Walcott became a clerk for the Connecticut Committee of the Pay Table, which, from the best I could figure, was a state committee designed to process payments due from the state. So, really exciting stuff here. (laughs) (laughs) After a year of serving as clerk, he would become a full member of the committee in 1782. He it for a couple of years on that committee, but in 1784, he was named as one of the commissioners to settle state claims against the United States. This was the time of, uh, under the Articles of Confederation, there was this loose confederation, and so there really were lots of disputes between the national government and the various state governments. Walcott Jr. gets involved in this, and this work would occupy him for the next four years. But... His mind wasn't just focused on work at this time, as he married Elizabeth Betsy Stauden on June 1st, 1785. Now, Betsy, at the time that they were married, was 18, while Oliver was 25. The two would have seven children, starting with John Stauden Walcott in 1787. But from what I found, it looks like only four of the children survived to adulthood. So, oh gosh. again, and, and it's, it's always... Difficult to hear, you know, there was so much child mortality at
1: the time.
0: Yeah, We have the same thing in our time period as yeah. well.
1: Yeah. Uh, quite a lot of adult mortality in our time period as well. <laughs> yeah.
0: Entire <laughs> mortality. It doesn't matter what age you are.
2: <laughs> the Tudor era was rather difficult to make it to an old, a ripe old age.
0: <laughs> it sounds the same for the colonies too, though. Yeah.
2: And especially this time, you know, it does get a bit better, but this was a difficult time too. In the meantime, in 1786, his father was elected as lieutenant governor of Connecticut, a post he would hold for the next 10 years. So both of them have these careers, but Walcott Jr. is starting to get involved on things on a bit of a higher level, while Senior is really focused on Connecticut. And this would continue on. And especially as this was around the time that we had the Constitutional Convention, we had the ratification, and we had this new government starting up. Even though Jr. had really started in Connecticut, with the new government under the Constitution, he sees an opportunity to do something larger. And thus, in 1789, with the formation of the new U.S. Department of the Treasury, Walcott Jr. became the auditor for the Treasury. Now, One thing to note here, even though Walcott had been encouraged to apply for the position, and this was really a time that everybody across the nation, you know, anybody from prominent families was like, okay, well, here's an opportunity. Maybe so-and-so can get this position because they were all vacant at that moment. And so folks knew Walcott Jr., still fairly young. This is an opportunity. Go ahead and apply for this position. When he was officially nominated, though, he at first demurred as he felt the appointment, quote, will not answer the ideas of an appointment which I had contemplated as proper for me. What does that mean? Too too high, too low? So it sounds like he felt that it was a bit too low for him. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Enter the ego. (laughs) We we will see this with Walcott Jr. (laughs) (laughs) But... He was ultimately convinced to accept by the person who would become his new boss. And this is a guy that you may have heard of, Alexander Hamilton.
0: Ooh, Hamilton. Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> so after a couple of years of diligent service, Walcott was promoted to Comptroller of the Treasury in 1791. So he's starting to move up the ranks in the Treasury.
0: What does the Comptroller do?
2: That is a good question. So I, I know that the comptroller and at that point, and, and it was interesting, I think I remember from an episode of yours, you were talking about a comptroller in the, the royal household.
0: Yes, there are two. So is it similar then? He would have been the one checking the accounts, doing the payroll, ensuring everything matched before releasing any of the money?
2: Exactly. So I think he was kind of that, you know, backup check, making sure that everything was above board. As far as I understand, I haven't done too much research into the comptroller position. We don't get around to it quite as much in the narrative, but from what I understand, that would be his role. And this is really an indicator. And as we'll see, you know, he's moving up the ranks because he's really proving himself. And, you know, even though there were Factional attacks on Hamilton. Oh well, he's so corrupt. There's corrupt things going on in the Treasury Department. As folks have studied Treasury records over, you know, over the ages, really not like the books really did match up to what they should. It, oh, okay. And, and so it sounds like that Walcott was seen as, you know, helping to ensure that things were on the up and up with the Treasury. And this was really needed, you know, not only Hamilton, but Washington realized this was important. This was the new federal government. They had to establish a level of trust. And so they had to go above and beyond. And Walcott was a part of that mechanism. Beyond just the professional realm, Walcott would also be brought into Hamilton's social circle. So Hamilton is definitely more of a prominent figure. He's been on the national scale for a while at this point. And so Hamilton starts to introduce Walcott to some of the leading Federalists from across the nation, starting to make those connections. And when it came time for Hamilton to retire from the position, there was only one person who he saw as a fitting replacement for him, his friend and right-hand person, Oliver Walcott Jr. Now, Walcott wrote to his father, asserting that, quote, I shall take no measures for putting myself in the way of this appointment if it is offered to me. I will accept it. So apparently he thought that this was good enough for him.
1: That one's all right (laughs) then. He's he's decided
2: secretary of the treasury. Okay. I'll, I'll accept that one. But you have this, you know, this humility. I mean, more than likely he really did want it, but it was expected at the time. Oh, well, you're not really supposed to want anything, but if you're called to service, sure. I'll do that.
0: So they're still trying to follow that Roman ideal of not putting yourself forward, but you will get it because you are you kind of thing. Exactly. And
2: oh, by the way, have you seen my resume? Here you go right here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying I want it, but here's my resume. (laughs) And so Ron Chernow, who did the biography of Alexander Hamilton that was translated into the musical. Chernow asserts that Walcott's appointment was as much of a testament to Walcott's skill as it was to the legacy that Hamilton was leaving at Treasury. So again, you know, Hamilton was leaving this office, but he knew that as the first Secretary of the Treasury, he had to leave things in good standing. And so this was the person that had helped him to build up the Treasury Department and build up its reputation. So he knew that Walcott was somebody who would continue that tradition. And thus, on February 2nd, 1795, Oliver Walcott Jr. assumed office as the second Secretary of the Treasury. Now, a scholar of the administrative history of the presidency, Leonard White, described Walcott as, quote, a capable Secretary of the Treasury, but on matters of fiscal policy, he depended almost
0: entirely on Hamilton. So Hamilton didn't really leave. He
1: kept advising in the background.
0: Exactly.
1: Yeah, how can you be capable in the Treasury if you're no good at fiscal policy? <laughs> what are you there for? Well, when Ale- <laughs> When Alexander Hamilton's
2: right next to you, oh well, why don't we do this? Okay, sure. And so we do see in the records, you know, Hamilton only a couple of months after Walcott took office, offered, quote, to tutor Walcott on how to maintain American credit and urged him to quote Write me as freely as you please. Walcott admitted to his predecessor that, quote, I do not clearly see how those public affairs of the Treasury are to be managed. Intimations from you will always be thankfully received.
0: So I wonder if he was chosen more because Hamilton knew he would still have a say than he was actually good. Another way of
2: Hamilton preserving his legacy, install kind of a puppet (laughs) secretary. (laughs) And as we've seen in previous episodes of this special series, as well as those who are just familiar with Hamilton, Hamilton was always more than glad to provide his opinion on matters and insert himself into any business, even when he wasn't an elected official. (laughs) (laughs) So for his own part, Walcott wrote of the office on his first year in it that, quote, The office of Secretary of the Treasury is justly viewed as of high consequence to the public. It will be found a very responsible situation, and no man can hold it without being opposed and attacked. Other qualifications than those which respect skill and capacity for the mere business of the Treasury will be desirable. At that time, modern budgetary procedures were not necessarily in place. You know, what we think of as good practice for accounting and budgeting was not necessarily in place, but Walcott in his role as Secretary of the Treasury did take it upon himself to help review and revise estimates to be provided to Congress in appropriation requests. As noted by Leonard White, quote, as more revenue was needed from time to time, the Treasury recommended new taxes such as the various excises or increases in the customs rates. In the modern sense of the term, it can hardly be said that a budget existed in the 1790s, but most of the essential procedures had been adopted by the Treasury within limits. Now, while serving as Secretary of the Treasury in Philadelphia, Walcott's residence was described as, quote, a neat house of two rooms, one small on a floor. So this is a time, you know, we think of cabinet officials having you know, really good places for entertainment, larger houses. But we see here, it wasn't necessarily the case. And especially at this point, you know, they knew that the Capitol was only going to be in Philadelphia for a few more years. So you see Walcott being a bit more economical in terms of his lodgings.
0: Did he own or rent? I've noticed that quite a number of the people that you cover rent their houses rather than purchase them. I don't know for certain. I would imagine that
2: he did. And again, that was part of, you know, it was cheaper to rent. And especially if you weren't planning on being there for a long period of time, Mm -hmm. it was just, it was easier to do. Most folks did not go to the extremes of Thomas Jefferson. He actually rented a house. I believe it was in New York. And did renovations on the house that he was renting. (laughs) Because, of course, Jefferson did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most folks just accepted the place as it was. We're only going to be here for a bit.
1: (laughs) Was that, has he got his wife and seven kids there? Or was this a matter of them leaving them at home, leaving them back in Connecticut?
2: I wasn't able to find for certain at the time, It varied. You know, there were some families that did want to travel, but of course that added to their expenses. Mm. Also, generally the wife would manage the household back at home and manage business affairs at times. And that's why, um, especially like with Abigail Adams, we see at this period of time when John Adams was the vice president, she didn't really travel to the national capital that much because she was taking care of business back in Quincy. Mm -hmm. But there were some families that that were like, and especially at this point, oh, well, Philadelphia was the cosmopolitan city. They wanted to be there in the action. But I wasn't really able to find much about his wife. Even with Walcott, I really had to, (laughs) I had a few books that I knew of And I was like, okay, let me go through and find every reference to Walcott. And so I was (laughs) able to pull this together more focused on his professional career. Walcott is not one that folks really study
0: that much.
2: And so you don't really get many details about the family, unfortunately.
0: We are very familiar with that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine.
0: But one of the big things that
2: happened um, soon after Walcott joined the cabinet is something called the Randolph Affair. And so we did discuss this in the episodes on Edmund Randolph and Timothy Pickering. But just to kind of give a summary, the French minister to the U.S., Jean-Antoine Joseph Fauchet, sent reports back to his government outlining how the Secretary of State, Edmund Randolph, had been rather familiar and indiscreet in his relations with the minister. He, instead of maintaining that diplomatic distance, he was really letting Fauche know more than he should have. And so these reports fell into British hands. The British turned them over to Walcott, who then worked with the Secretary of War, Timothy Pickering, to use these to turn Washington against Randolph. And so this was a time when Walcott entered the cabinet, there was very much a factional divide between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. So the Democratic Republicans were more Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, that crowd. And the Federalists were more closely aligned with the Washington administration. Randolph had always kind of walked the line between the two. He was A bit more in the Democratic-Republican side of things, but he could also, he wasn't necessarily quite as radical as Jefferson or Madison. He wasn't as far to that end. So at this point, pretty much everybody else in the cabinet is more Federalist, and they're further along the spectrum towards being what would come to be called high Federalist. And so Randolph was seen as being an impediment to the Federalist cause. And so they had reason to want him out. And so they saw this opportunity. They brought these letters to Washington. They talked to him before he talked to Randolph. And when Washington confronted Randolph, Pickering and Walcott were there. Randolph resigned in a huff And Washington turned to Pickering first on a temporary basis and then on a permanent basis when he couldn't find anybody else to take over at the State Department. So Walcott's a part of this scheming to force out the Secretary of State and get somebody more aligned with the Federalists in place. One of the things to note here, though Washington did not rely on Walcott to the same extent that he had Hamilton, he did ask him for assistance in handling a very personal matter. Ona Judge had been enslaved by the Washingtons her entire life as part of Martha Washington's dowry from the death of her first husband. Towards the end of Washington's second term, Ona learned that Martha Washington planned on giving her to her granddaughter as a wedding present. Not only would this separate Ona from her family back at Mount Vernon, but the granddaughter was known to have a quote-unquote mercurial temperament. Now, given those circumstances, Ona decided to take her chances and seek her freedom. And thus, on May 21st, 1796, while the Washingtons were at dinner, Ona slipped out of the President's house in Philadelphia. She managed to get passage on a ship bound for New Hampshire, and she started a new life in Portsmouth. Now, President Washington naturally was not happy about this. And After initial efforts had failed and they learned that Ona was in Portsmouth, President Washington approached Walcott about working through the customs officer at Portsmouth to have him help recover Ona. Oh,
1: dear.
2: Yes. So he is the head of the government.
0: Going after a slave.
2: Asking government officials to help him recover somebody and bring them back into enslavement. Wow.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah. And Walcott agreed. He reached out to the customs officer, Joseph Whipple, who then spent several weeks tracking down Ona. Whipple finally secured a meeting with her on the pretense of offering her a job. But as he started asking probing questions, trying to verify her identity, she realized what was happening. And so at that point, Whipple went ahead. He revealed his true purpose. And he offered to negotiate a deal on her behalf with the Washingtons. And Whipple just kind of came up with this on his own. He was like, well, maybe they will grant your freedom upon their deaths. You know, if we can get a deal that they will do that, would you agree to come back? Now, Judge did agree to meet the ship that Whipple would arrange for her return south. But considering that here she was, she didn't know she was going to meet with this guy who was acting as an agent for the Washingtons to re-enslave her. She'd pretty much say anything just to get out of there. And so she's like, Oh sure. I'll meet you. Tell me where the ship is. Yep. I'll be there. Surprise, surprise. She didn't show up. (laughs) Smart woman. (laughs) And Whipple decided at this point, he, uh, uh, you know, I've done my part. He reported back his failure And he advised Washington, you know, if you really want to get her back, you probably need to go ahead and get a lawyer and work through the U.S. District Attorney. This really isn't my job. And there were legal precedents for that. There was a Fugitive Slave Act in the law books that he could have used that procedure. Washington, however, wanted to keep things quiet. Again, this was George Washington. As listeners know, George Washington was all about the public appearance of George Washington. And he knew that making a big public show of trying to recapture own a judge would not look well.
0: Wasn't he already being pushed by some others to release all his slaves and set an example?
2: Exactly. Okay. You know, there there were folks, including the Marquis de Lafayette, talked to Washington. Right. Um, Lafayette was all about the abolitionist cause and ending slavery. And so he was already under pressure and this was building as a movement in the US. And so Washington realized, you know, this would not look well for him.
1: So it was just dropping it presumably wasn't an option. Um, I mean, for one slave, he wouldn't think it was worth it, but I suppose he's thinking of if, if one goes, they'll all go. Well, and the problem was,
2: so, I mentioned that Ona was a part of Martha Washington's dowry. So basically this was kind of, it was uh, held in trust. So even though Washington could use the enslaved individuals on his farms at Mount Vernon,
0: he did not actually own them.
2: Exactly. They weren't owned by him directly. If something happened to them and he was held responsible as the manager of the dowry, he would have to repay the dowry, the value of the enslaved person. And so that was part of the reason why he pursued Ona Judge was he didn't want to have to pay the dowry back for her escape. But at this point, there really wasn't anything that he could do if he didn't want to make a public deal of it. So he let the matter go. After Again, this, and and we will be talking about this when we get to kind of the scandalous round in the rankings, because, I mean, it just, it really reeks of using and abusing his public position yeah. for what was a private matter, was his own personal matter. And, oh, by the way, you're trying to re-enslave somebody, so. But this was at the end of Washington's tenure as president. And so he left office after two terms. John Adams was elected president in 1796. And Adams had a decision to make because at this point, this is the first presidential transition. There was no precedent for what would happen with the cabinet. And so John Adams decided to retain Washington's cabinet. And so Walcott remained at his post. Now, This was a decision that Adams would live to regret, as we shall soon see, because, as we've already seen, Walcott has very close relations with Alexander Hamilton, but also his colleagues, the Secretary of State Pickering and the Secretary of War James McHenry, also would maintain these close relations with Alexander Hamilton.
0: Slightly off topic... Do you think that if Washington hadn't voluntarily stepped down, that they would have just kept going? Nobody seemed to want to question his right to be there.
2: And there were even folks that were pushing for him to take on a third term. Yeah. And part of it was they knew what would happen and what did happen after Washington retired. It increased the factionalism because Washington was kind of the only person that everybody held in high regard. Well, almost everybody. But Washington also knew because that was the way that they convinced him to take on the second term. Oh, well, you know, you're the only one who can bridge the gap. And towards the end of the second term, he was like, well, the factions haven't gotten any closer They're It's only getting worse. And mm-hmm. now I'm starting to get dragged into the mud. I don't really want to be a part of this. I don't seem to be the solution. Right. But yes, they would have, by all indications, they would have just kept George Washington on as president as long as he wanted. Okay. And that was also one of the things that the Democratic-Republicans pointed to as a concern. You know, is this really what Federalists think that this office should be?
0: More of a monarchy rather than the Republic, if he continues and just never steps down. Exactly.
1: Okay.
2: But- With that, and with the retention of Washington's cabinet, and again, this was part of, you know, well, George Washington picked out these people, so who am I, John Adams, to remove them? You know, what would that look like? And so he retained these folks, but at the time, Adams and Hamilton were already starting to fall out, and it would only get worse over time. Now, the first problems that Adams had with his new cabinet came immediately after he assumed office. At that time, there were tensions with France, and the French government had actually refused to recognize the new U.S. minister to France, Charles Coastworth Pinckney. They had refused to accept his commission, and so that created a diplomatic turmoil. And Adams learned of that, that just a few days after he took office. And so Adams had already been thinking about this idea of, well, maybe we need a peace commission to go and help to negotiate things. Also, let's make it a bipartisan commission. Let's not just have Federalists. Let's have folks from the Democratic-Republican camp. And when he started thinking, folks, first he approached Jefferson, who had just become vice president at the time. And Jefferson was like, well, I am vice president. I probably should stick around just in case something happens. But then they started talking about James Madison, who was Jefferson's close associate. He had just left from the House of Representatives. And so Adams was like, you know, Madison would be good. That would be a a strong Democratic-Republican leader as part of this peace effort. When he told his cabinet of this, Walcott, along with Pickering and McHenry, threatened to resign if Adams went ahead with the idea.
0: Really? (laughs) Really? That sounds so petulant.
2: (laughs) And especially considering that Adams at this point had been president for maybe a week or so. (laughs) Oh, the poor guy. (laughs) Welcome. We're going to resign if you don't do what we say. Now... Thankfully for President Adams, he soon got word that Madison was not on board with this, and so he was able to just kind of back away from this idea. But this was a clear indicator early on his cabinet was going to be a problem. Even though they didn't like this idea of this bipartisan commission, Walcott, as well as the other cabinet members, do in part to the influence of Hamilton, who thought that this was a good idea did support the idea of a commission, and indeed it was Walcott who pulled together what Adams biographer for Page Smith described as, quote, a long and ably argued paper on the requirements for the French negotiation. So Walcott's starting to get involved in these diplomatic affairs, and the commission does go through. Ultimately, there would be a problem. So the commission would arrive in France But when they got there, these agents of the French foreign minister, Talleyrand, came to the Peace Commission and said, you know what? I mean, these negotiations, they would be really great. I don't know that we're going to be able to make them happen. Our hands are a little light. Could you possibly? Oh, no. uh, Do you have some cash that? you may want to hand over. (laughs) Yes. So the, and this was standard practice at the time, asking for a bribe in order to get negotiations going. But the American commissioners were rather irritated and said, no, we are not going to pay a bribe. We are here as official representatives of our government negotiate with us. That went nowhere. And so, the Peace Commission ended up leaving and going back home. Now, word was getting back to the Adams administration about this, and they started thinking, you know, we probably should keep this quiet because people are going to be really upset at this. Well, the Democratic Republicans who were out of government at this point, you know, they were in Congress but not in the administration, they are like, why aren't they telling us about what's happening with this Peace Commission? What's going on? Maybe we need to go ahead and request the papers. You know, they've they've got diplomatic correspondence coming back and forth. There's got to be something. Those Federalists are up to something. And so the Democratic-Republicans in Congress pushed through a bill requesting that this diplomatic correspondence be released.
0: <laughs> but they're hoping that something bad on the Federalist side is what's happened. Exactly. But that's not the case. And John Adams
2: tried to send word to them, hey, you really don't want to do this, and they kept on, and finally, okay, here you go, here it is, and so naturally, folks were upset, and it looked like this diplomatic affront called the XYZ affair was going to lead into war, and so Hamilton pulls out his pen, he writes to Walcott, and instructs him, quote, that the United States should boost taxes, take out a large loan, and establish an academy for naval and military instruction in order to prepare for the conflict. So, again, we have Hamilton, the puppet master behind the scenes, writing to Walcott, the actual Secretary of the Treasury, giving him his marching orders. And so Walcott did put forward these ideas of preparedness to President Adams but Walcott wasn't really as pro-war as some of his cabinet colleagues. He's like, you yeah, know, we probably should prepare, but you know, let's hold off on doing too much to bring about a war.
1: Did people listen to him? I mean, was he in a position where he had influence? So he did have some
2: influence. And at this point, Adams was pretty much in that place he didn't necessarily he didn't think that the US was ready for war he knew that it would take a bit to get things together and so he was trying to find a way to get prepared but also are there any other ways that we can avoid this now congress was pretty upset and especially the federalists you know once they had the papers from the xyz affair released they were like you know we just need war you know how could they mistreat us like this, we thought we were friends with the French. And so Congress approved funding for new soldiers and they created new military positions to lead the force. This caused yet another problem in the cabinet as Adams found himself in conflict with his cabinet members again over the rankings of these officers. Now it was clear you know George Washington was still around at this point and so naturally we're putting together this new military force. George Washington has to be the commander-in-chief. But there are these three positions underneath him. It was his second-in-command, third, and fourth. Adams appointed Henry Knox, who had served under Washington before, had been a trusted colleague, had been Secretary of War. He appointed Henry Knox as the second-in-command. But the cabinet members start saying, well, no, Hamilton. I mean, Hamilton's closer to Washington than Henry Knox. And then George Washington pipes up and says, you know what? I, I really do want Alexander Hamilton as my second in command. He, he is my right hand person. I, I need him. And so President Adams ends up in this fight with his cabinet, with George Washington over this, and Adams was finally forced to capitulate.
0: He's not winning anything.
2: (laughs) He is not winning any of these battles. (laughs) And he finally has to say, well, I can't really go against George Washington because I'm John Adams. If he wants Hamilton as his second in command, that's fine. But he was not happy about it. In fact, he wrote to Walcott during the dispute that, quote, If I should consent to the appointment of Hamilton as a second in rank, I should consider it as the most irresponsible action of my whole life and the most difficult to justify. He is not a native of the United States, but a foreigner. His rank in the late army was comparatively very low. His merits with a party are the merits of John Calvin. Some think on Calvin, Heaven's own spirit fell while others deem him an instrument of hell.
1: Hmm. Oh my telling them.
2: John Adams really did not like Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> no. But he ended up having to give in because he couldn't fight against George Washington and his cabinet on this matter. Naturally, being the second in command of this new military force. And really the de facto commander of it, because George Washington just stayed in Mount Vernon at this entire time and turned over everything to Hamilton to take care of. So naturally, Hamilton's going to continue to advise Walcott on military matters, such as when Adams asked for advice on what to do about a filibustering expedition planned into Spanish territory. So this was something that was growing at this time, and we'll continue to see it. Throughout presidencies for the next few decades, folks, both Americans and folks coming to America from other places, wanting to launch these expeditions to take territory in Latin America, in the Caribbean, places like that. And so the government had to figure out some responses to this. With this, you know, Adams, as the president did at the time, turned his cabinet for advice and as noted by Adam's biographer, Paige Smith, quote, Hamilton's hand had guided Walcott's response, and as a result, it was the ablest and most comprehensive of the responses submitted to the president. Hamilton didn't do anything halfway, so naturally it would be the best response. Something that would come to be a point of contention between Adams and some of his cabinet members, Pickering and Walcott in particular, were his absences from the seat of government to return home to Quincy. Though it was common for folks to leave the city of Philadelphia during the summer due to the heat and threat of yellow fever, they had concerns about Adams being so far away, disrupting the business of government. Now, to be fair to Mr. Adams, Washington had set this precedent. He had gone back to Mount Vernon numerous times during his presidency. But this would also cause some problems, especially when you have cabinet members back in Philadelphia with little to no respect for the president and more than willing to run their own agendas. In fact, Walcott will write to Hamilton, quote, I am grieved when I think of the situation of the government. An affair which ought to have been settled at once will cost much time and perhaps be so managed as to encourage other and formidable rebellions. And so this was a reference to the Friezes Rebellion, which is, it ultimately was a minor domestic uprising. Didn't last that long, just a day, but they use this as a things are falling apart and the president, Adams, is to blame. And so continuing on, Walcott said to Hamilton, we have no president here and the appearance of languor and indecision are discouraging to the friends of government. He continued on, quote, You know the state of things in the country, the public opinion, the disposition of the president. If anything can and ought to be done, and I can be of any service, I will do it, however
0: unpleasant. So now he's going against the president behind his back.
2: You have the Secretary of the Treasury intriguing against the president. Oh this just isn't going well. <laughs> John Adams did not have an easy time as president.
0: <laughs> no. It seems like him just keeping that cabinet was his first and probably worst mistake.
1: And everything everything seems to have spiral pretty quickly.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah and, and that's the thing like it just It just kept on and on and kept getting worse and worse for him. And really for politics in general, it was just, it was a troubling time. You have these factional disputes, not just the Federalists versus the Democratic Republicans. You have the Federalist Party splitting apart over whether you're more pro-Hamilton or pro-Adams. Hamilton did apparently have someone other than John Adams who was stymieing his efforts to build up the new army as he wished. Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott McHenry wrote to Hamilton on june twenty sixth seventeen ninety nine that quote, "I find from frequent and repeated conversations that we have not been able to remove any one of the prejudices entertained by the Secretary of the Treasury against the augmentation of the army that he thinks or seems to think." that the means of resources of the United States which can be called forth without annual loans are inadequate to the expenditures required for the support of the Army and Navy. Consequently, that some part of the one or the other must soon be suspended or dropped, and that he even contemplates a statement of facts relative to our means to the president. So basically, Walcott was looking at the numbers and he's like, This isn't adding up.
0: That doesn't sound like he's against Hamilton, though. That just says, we don't have the money. Where are you getting it?
2: Well, and that's the thing. Like, Hamilton kept pushing for, well, we need more folks. We need more supplies. We need to do this. We need to do that. Just like I mentioned earlier, you know, he was sending him this wish list of this is what we need to do for national defense to build up this army. He just kept sending the the wishes. And finally, Walcott had to say, we don't have the money. It's not adding up. And Hamilton, you know, he had been in that position as Secretary of the Treasury. Oh, well, you can just get creative. You can do things. You know, you can make things work. And Walcott was like, I'm not really comfortable with doing that. And in part, it reflects that Hamilton may have been able to make it work. Walcott wasn't Hamilton. You know, he wasn't as much of a shrewd person when it came to budgetary matters and economics and the national debt and all of that, that Hamilton
1: was. Does he just lack the capability or is, does he have actual moral qualms about this? That he can't cook the books in this way that Hamilton did? Exactly. Well, and and part of the thing that I'm
2: wondering, and especially considering that he was willing to go to Adams, I mean, he was stooping down to actually go to the president about matters. Shock. (laughs) You really do get the sense that there are a couple of things that were going on here. You know, first of all, you didn't really see that the finances were in the shape to be able to provide for this large force. And also, he really wasn't that pro-war. He he he's like, I don't really think this is a good idea. And so you wonder, part of it, you know, was it his ability? Part of it was he really just didn't want to make it work. And this was his way of trying to put the brakes on this. And we actually do get a little bit from Walcott in trying to explain his reluctance because he wrote to former U.S. Representative Fisher Ames, quote, that nothing is more certain than that the army is unpopular even in the southern states for whose defense it was raised. The northern people fear no invasion, or if they did, they perceive no security in a handful of troops. And so one of the things that we do need to note here The U.S. Army was minuscule at this point. Really, it was more for protecting settlers in the Northwest Territory and those frontier settlements than it really was for what we think of in terms of national defense or even being able to project power. And so it was going to take a lot to get the Army up to speed to take on France.
0: Were they still relying on militias?
2: They were still relying on militias. Okay. And so there was a big problem there. You know, militia forces, it, 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 even though it was seen as this ideal of the citizen soldier, in reality, they were mostly untrained people.
0: Poorly trained. Yeah.
2: <laughs> poorly trained, poorly armed. <laughs> who were told, bring your gun, show up. We're going to put you at the front lines. yell yeah, will all work out. And most of them, hey, there's a professional army in front of us. Um, (laughs) I'm a farmer with a gun. I think I'm going to hightail it out of here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So part of this is being realistic. You know, we don't have the force. It really seems like the public isn't really for a large army. Our finances aren't in a place to really ramp up fast. We really don't need to do this. And so, you know, even though this is a rarity with Walcott, we do see, at least at this point, some challenging of Hamilton. But, of course, this wouldn't last. You know, Walcott was going to end up in conflict with Adams again, as would the other cabinet members.
1: Well, once people have got their hearts set on war, you just can't stop them, can you? I mean, it's you've, you come across that again and again, that if you turn against people who want war, then you're the coward and you've got to justify yourself.
2: Exactly. And especially, Lucy, we did talk about this in the episode on Alexander Hamilton. Mm-hmm. You know, he had this almost obsession with military glory. He wanted to be able to prove himself on the battlefield. He was able to finally participate in the Battle of Yorktown at the end of the American Revolution, but that was just one battle. He had a role in leading some troops there, but he really wanted more military glory. And he saw this as his opportunity to do that.
0: So it's selfish. It it really is. The whole thing is selfish.
2: Exactly. And... Oh, my gosh. What kind of a
0: person do you have to be that your selfishness is going to get people killed?
1: I bet lots of wars have started for that very same reason. I'm thinking (laughs) of a few in our our era, our Tudor era, that uh, (laughs) started from one person wanting a bit of military glory. I was thinking of James IV of Scotland at the moment, but there are plenty of others.
0: Yes, Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and here you see, you know, Hamilton starting to, even his own underlings, if you will, are starting to question this. And so this reflects just how unbalanced the scale was. You know that that even Walcott, who had been his trusted right hand person for years, was saying, "We we this isn't this isn't right. We need to." I, I think I'm going to have to challenge you on this.
0: I'm starting to like him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Everybody's got to have at least some redeeming qualities. But hold off on that because there's going to be more conflict in the Adams administration. Because Adams would push forward with plans for a second peace commission to go to France in 1799. Adams was definitely, at this point, not for war. He was like, this is, this is ridiculous, you know... We can find another way. And so he put forward this idea of a second peace commission. Most of the cabinet did not like this. And Walcott was included in this. They wanted to do everything they could to drag their feet and frustrate plans.
0: Why? If you don't want war, why would you not send the second peace commission? I'm confused.
2: Well, part of it was, and this is part of the conflict between Adams and his cabinet, the cabinet members would probably be okay with it if they had come up with the idea and put Ah. it forward. But John Adams just keeps on. I mean, how dare the president come up with his own ideas and tell (laughs) us what we need to do. I mean, who does he think he is? And so the cabinet, including Walcott, did everything they could to drag their feet and frustrate plans. And Adams did help with this because Adams was at Quincy, Massachusetts at the time. The cabinet was originally in Philadelphia, but there was an outbreak of yellow fever. And so they moved the seat of government temporarily to Trenton, New Jersey, just to be able to have all the offices open and be able to keep the government running. And so this was even further away. It took even longer to get messages back and forth between Trin and Quincy. And they use this, their advantage, you know, know, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't get that message from you or, Oh, I just got this message from you. It hasn't been sitting on my desk for three weeks.
1: It all sounds a little bit petty, doesn't it? Just a little bit petty. (laughs) Very petty. (laughs) I agree.
2: There was lots of pettiness going on. And, I always tell folks, I'm like, you know, we think that so many things are unique to our time, but, you know, pettiness in politics may exist nowadays. It's existed a long time before that. Yeah. But President Adams finally gets, he reaches his breaking point. He's like, okay, things just need to happen. So he makes a trip to Trenton in the early fall. And once he gets on the ground, He lets them have it. He's like, you know, we're getting things moving. Here's what needs to happen. And Alexander Hamilton was even there. And so he was even able to kind of tell off Hamilton as well. (laughs) But finally, you know, with Adams doing this, he was able to get the peace commission going. This peace commission would ultimately be successful. There would be a diplomatic resolution to the issues between France and the United States. And, they were able to avoid going to full out war. But from that point on, it was clear that there was no bridging the gap between the president and the majority of his cabinet. And Walcott wrote to other Federalists that Adams considered him, Pickering, and McHenry as enemies. As naturally you would when
1: Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> kind of justified <laughs> I'm gonna get rid of them. I'm just thinking of British politics yeah. the Prime Minister would have a reshuffle. And he'd get rid of the ones he didn't want. But can the president do the same thing?
2: So this does come up for debate later on. But George Washington had established the precedent that, yes, the president can say, I want to get rid of a cabinet member. Adams had been reluctant to do so because all these folks had been involved in the party politics. And so they knew quite a few people. They were pretty prominent at the time. But finally, he's had enough. And so Adams did fire both Pickering and McHenry from their positions in May 1800. Good. He replaced them with John Marshall and Samuel Dexter, respectively. Though this didn't help Adams' standing with the Federalist Party, it did at least get him a cabinet that would support him. And so at this point, Walcott is still in the cabinet. But now, instead of being part of this majority against Adams, He's now the lone person who is against Adams. Right. Because the Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Stoddart, and Attorney General Charles Lee were Adams supporters. And so now the Secretary of State, the new Secretary of War are pro Adams. And so it actually is an administration that will support the president. Now, Walcott had some thinking to do. You know, what does what he do here? Does he go ahead and resign? Does he stick it out?
1: Well, why didn't Adams get rid of Walcott as well and get rid of the, the, whole, the whole bunch of them? It's interesting. I don't
2: really know if it's... We'll talk a little more about okay. that because we do have some insight from Adams as to what he thought of Walcott. One thing we should bring up here is that, so this is May 1800, 1800 was also an election year. You have Adams who decides to retain Walcott. He's gotten rid of these other two troublemakers. And so part of it, you wonder if he, he just thinks, okay, well, you know, I've gotten rid of them. They were really the worst of the worst. Walcott didn't, he he could be pretty vocal, but he wasn't as vocal as the others. So let's just go ahead and leave that sleeping dog lying. We've got this election to worry about. But he probably should have gotten rid of Walcott as well, because Ron Chernow wrote in his book on Alexander Hamilton, quote, even though Adams thought Walcott more loyal than McHenry and Pickering, Walcott considered the president a powder keg. A couple of months after he had fired Pickering and McHenry, Walcott wrote to Hamilton on July seventh, eighteen hundred, that quote, it is necessary to give a proper direction to the newspapers which are, at present, filled with the most disgusting nonsense. The cause of the Federalists has declined. Their system has been reversed. Honest men have been calumniated and discredited, and no apology or explanation has been offered to the public. It will be extraordinary if all these strange proceedings are permitted to be slurred over by attributing them to state necessity, the firmness of the President, his independence of both parties, etc., A few paragraphs exposing the folly of such publications will produce an admirable effect.
0: So he's turning into a whistleblower. Exactly. Uh Uh-oh.
2: And is pushing for Hamilton to start putting stuff in the newspapers, attacking Adams, and really trying to shift the narrative to he just got rid of some loyal Federalists, you know, these true patriots. What is this guy doing?
0: So Walcott's not going to do it. He's asking Hamilton to do the dirty work.
2: Because Hamilton's on the outside. And also Hamilton has done this so many times before. (laughs) He's like, you're the guy, you can do this. And in August, 1800, Walcott wrote to Fisher Ames that Federalists should not support Adams's reelection. He asserted that, quote, However dangerous the election of Mr. Jefferson may prove to the community, I do not perceive that any portion of the mischief would be avoided by the election of Mr. Adams. We know the temper of his mind to be revolutionary, violent, and vindictive. Adams thought that he could kind of keep Walcott under control and, oh, he wasn't as bad as the other two. No, he he was pretty bad. Mm Mm-hmm. And so Hamilton did proceed with his plan to attack John Adams in the press. He ended up publishing this long, long, as Alexander Hamilton was wont want to do, this long pamphlet about, I mean, just attacking Adams, being vicious against him. Again, from Chernow, quote, in his massive indictment of Adams, Hamilton drew on abundant information provided by McHenry, Pickering, and Walcott about presidential behavior behind closed doors. Hamilton knew that the three would be charged with treachery by Adams, but he thought his pamphlet would forfeit all credibility without such documentation. So they provided him with the information that he used to attack President Adams. Now, Walcott did have his doubts about this being in there, this kind of being the, and and you really wonder if at one point when he realized that it was happening, he started having second thoughts, you know, yeah, I know I said we should kind of do something about him, but. I didn't want you to bring my name into yeah, it. Yeah, I was
1: just thinking, presumably he wasn't <laughs> expecting, yes, to be named, named and shamed in the, in the newspaper.
2: Yeah. You know, go ahead and put your ideas out there, Hamilton, but mm. not me. <laughs> And you also have the sense that he he had kind of that realization, you know what, this may backfire against us. This may not work out quite as we're thinking. But it was done. The attack was out there. And Walcott was still Secretary of the Treasury. He wasn't asked to resign. So again, you have this weird, like, you really wonder, and Adams did have this tendency at times he really he could have a blind spot for somebody because he was so focused on because he knew Hamilton was at the head of this and he knew that Pickering and McHenry had been so involved it seems like he just kind of ignored that Walcott was in the mix as well but there was lots going on at that point point. Along with the election, there was also a big change happening in government. Philadelphia had been the temporary capital for 10 years, but now it was time to move the national capital to Washington, D.C. And so President Adams arrived in early November of 1800, and a short time after he arrived, Walcott turned in his resignation. Walcott claimed it was for personal reasons, but given everything that's happened, you wonder if Walcott. You know, maybe felt maybe I went too far. Maybe this really doesn't look good for me. Or maybe he was just thinking, you know what? This is a train wreck. John Adams probably isn't getting reelected. Maybe I just need to go ahead and cut my losses and go.
1: Yeah. Was he jumping before he was pushed? Do you think?
2: Exactly. You hmm. do have to wonder that, you know, one way or another and especially since it was looking increasingly unlikely that there would be a second Adams term, well, he was going to probably be out of the job anyway with Jefferson coming in. So just go ahead and pull off the Band-Aid, get it done. Mm -hmm. Let's just move forward. Now, here's where we get to trying to wonder what Adams was thinking and what he really felt about Walcott. Because Adams, in his letter of November 10th, accepting Walcott's resignation, wrote that, quote, Although I shall part with your services as Secretary of the Treasury with reluctance and regret, I am nevertheless sensible that you are the best and the only judge of the expediency of your resignation. So this seems rather cordial, much Mm -hmm. more so than you would expect of this guy who had been plotting against him. And so we really don't know how much Adams knew of that or not, or whether Adams just kind of turned a blind eye to it. Regardless, on December 31st, 1800, Oliver Walcott Jr. left office as the second Secretary of the Treasury. But there's still a bit more scandal to discuss. Because soon after Walcott's retirement, on January 20th, 1801, the Treasury Department building in Washington caught on fire. Walcott was still in town. He was trying to clear up his business, set things right in terms of the official papers. And so when the building caught on fire, Walcott either saw or heard or whatever, he rushed to the scene and worked with the clerk to save both his private as well as public papers from going up in flames. Even though he did this, you know, he, he tried to rescue the papers. He was accused in the rumor circles of setting the fire himself, quote, as a means of preventing full disclosure of his treasury transactions. An investigation was done by a House committee. They cleared him, quote, of the charge of taking away public papers, although they made no statement one way or the other about his culpability in setting the fire. Hmm. So they're like, okay, well, you didn't get rid of any of your public papers, as far as we know, in terms of carrying them away. There was also this fire, period. You know, we've still got this little bit of scandal. And we do see see this from time to time. And we did see it with Hamilton. You know, there, there was, even while Hamilton was Secretary of the Treasury, but even after congressional investigations into the accounts, oh, well, you've done some wrongdoing. And you probably tried to clear it up. It doesn't seem like anything ever came of it. But there was that little bit of rumor mill going on. Mm-hmm. Now, Leonard White wrote of Walcott's exit from the cabinet as follows, Retiring as Secretary of the Treasury in 1800 with only a few hundred dollars and a small farm in Connecticut, Walcott formed a lucrative business connection with the aid of Alexander Hamilton. So Hamilton's going to make sure that Walcott is set up. But Hamilton was not the only one who was looking out for Walcott. Despite... All that we know of Walcott and his disagreements with Adams, prior to leaving office, President Adams did nominate Walcott to a position on the U.S. Circuit Court for the Second Circuit. And Walcott was confirmed on February 20th, 1801. As a judge? As a judge. As a circuit court judge. So this is, they um, put through this new Judiciary Act and it created all these new judgeships because... At the time, as in the modern era, the court system had lots of cases going on. It was a lot of work for the people that were in there. And so they went ahead and set up this circuit court system as kind of a buffer between the Supreme Court and the district courts. And so you have all these new positions available. Adams was still president and said, you know what? I'm still president. I'm going to appoint folks. They were confirmed by the Senate. And Walcott was one of these folks.
0: I question his judgment in what he did with Adams. I'm not sure
1: him as a judge is the best <laughs> idea. Do you think, on Adam's part, this is a, a means of keeping Walcott out of politics? You keep him busy on the bench oh, instead. Good
0: idea.
1: Possibly. And keeping
0: him quiet, oh, sort of paying God. him off to not make things worse. Yeah. Possibly.
2: <laughs> Well, and, and when Walcott wrote to Adams about the nomination, Adams responded that, quote, I have never allowed myself to speak much of the gratitude due from the public to individuals for past services, but I have always wished that more should be said of justice. Justice is due from the public to itself, and justice is also due to individuals. When the public discards or neglects talents and integrity, united with meritorious past services." It commits inequity against itself by depriving itself of the benefit of future services, and it does wrong to the individual by depriving him of the reward which long and faithful services have merited. Twenty years of able and faithful services on the part of Mr. Walcott, remunerated only by a simple subsistence, it appeared to me constituted a claim upon the public which ought to be attended to. So it sounds like he's saying, you know, you you have had this long service. You've been a part of the Treasury Department since 1789. I know you really don't have much in terms of your own personal wealth. So here you go. Here's something mm-hmm. that you can take.
1: Why didn't he have a personal wealth? I mean, did he not? Do they not all come come away from a political role with a? Nice little wad in their back pocket. I thought it was part. Of it came with the territory, doesn't it? Washington didn't. No, he didn't. Well, and that no. is one of the things of the time
2: we see with cabinet members, even with those that are wealthy when they come in, they have to spend so much in terms of, you know, participating in official functions, travel back and forth. Keeping up appearances. Keeping up appearances, keeping their family supported while they're not making money in other ways. And so they typically come out in a worse position than they were coming in. And if Walcott really didn't have that much to begin with, it would be a really bad situation. Mm. Um, And also it does at least seem like he was mostly on the up and up with treasury functions. So he wasn't saying, okay, $2 for you, US $1 for me. Oh, good
1: point! yeah,
2: <laughs> he wasn't putting any away for himself he He was actually on the up and up, but that doesn't really help him personally and so you see you know Adams and Hamilton both agreeing to let's see what we can do for Walcott. Unfortunately, Walcott would not be in this position for long as the Democratic Republicans who came in. They looked at this Judiciary Act, which created all these new judgeships, and Adams appointed them just a few days before leaving office. They saw this as being corrupt, and so they went ahead and revoked that judicial oh no. act, <laughs> eliminated all these positions, and so on. as of July 1st, 1802, Walcott found himself out of his judgeship. Unemployed. Unemployed. So hopefully things were working out with the business connection with Hamilton because he wasn't getting any of that judgeship money anymore. And this would be a difficult time for Walcott. He suffered the loss of his wife, Betsy, on September 25th, 1805, when Betsy was only 38 years old. This is one of those points, and especially with so little information about Walcott personally, I really haven't been able to find out much of what he was up to between losing the judgeship in 1802 until 1814. That year, he purchased a home in Lynchfield, Connecticut, which had originally been built in 1799. So going back home, going back to where his family was from. And apparently by 1815, he was employed as a farmer, but he would Hmm. return to public service a couple of years later when he was elected as governor of the state of Connecticut.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a jump, farmer to governor.
2: <laughs> There's a lot of rise and fall, as, as y'all see sometimes in the Tudor era. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunes can rise and fall very quickly. So he's gone from Secretary of the Treasury down, well, to the judgeship, to farmer. Now he's on the rise again. And now this was an interesting time in Connecticut state politics because Walcott was a member of what was called the Toleration Party. It had been formed in the 1817 election cycle as an alliance between Democratic Republicans in Connecticut and more conservative Episcopalians in the state in opposition to the official state church, the Congregational Church. So this was an entire debate about Connecticut had an official state church, and you have these other folks, including folks because Walcott had originally been a Federalist and had been a pretty staunch Federalist, but here he's partnering with Democratic-Republicans and saying, you know, this is not right, and they agreed that Walcott, the former Federalist, should be their candidate for governor, and they chose a Democratic-Republican, Judge Jonathan Ingersoll, as lieutenant governor and the Toleration Party won. Walcott assumed office as the 24th governor of Connecticut on May 8th, 1817. Walcott's tenure as governor, he actually had a very early success in winning approval in the State General Assembly for a new state constitutional convention. Now, it was a very narrow victory. This passed by only one vote, but it was still a win, and the constitution that came out of the convention would expand voter suffrage and disestablish the Congregational Church as the state church of Connecticut. So the debate was won by the Toleration Party led by Walcott, and this constitution that Walcott was a part of pushing for and putting into place was actually the state constitution of Connecticut until 1965. Wow! So 100 and nearly 150 years. As gubernatorial elections in Connecticut were held every year, Walcott managed to get reelected nine times, mostly by pretty wide margins against Federalist candidates in eighteen twenty seven however, Walcott would lose his tenth bid for reelection to former u s representative Gideon Tomlinson, with Tomlinson earning fifty seven percent of the vote to walcott's thirty nine you know Walcott was pretty prominent in Connecticut politics for about a decade. And he was also during this time he served for a couple of years as the fifth Grand Master of the Masonic Grand Lodge of Connecticut. But with this exit from the governorship, this final loss, it would prove to be the end of Walcott's decades of public service. And Leonard White wrote that with this exit from the governorship, Walcott, quote, closed a public career of distinction both in administration and in political leadership. So this was 1827. Walcott would live for a few more years, but he died in New York City on June 1st, 1833. Now when he died, he was the last surviving cabinet member of the Washington administration. He was laid to rest with his wife Betsy at East Cemetery in Lynchfield, Connecticut. Looking at his legacy in terms of places, the town of Farmingbury in Connecticut was renamed as Walcott in 1796 to honor both Oliver Walcott Sr. and Oliver Walcott Jr. So it was named in honor of both father and son. A couple of years later, Fort Washington in Newport, Rhode Island was renamed Fort Walcott in honor of the Treasury Secretary, and it would serve as an active coastal defense fort until 1836. And finally, that house that Walcott bought back in 1814 was donated to the Lynchfield Historical Society in 1963, and they in turn gave it to the town library to serve as its new home. The library was renamed the Oliver Walcott Library to honor both senior and junior, and opened in its new location in 1966, and it is still open to the public to this day. And that, dear friends, is the life of Oliver Walcott. Okay. So, initial thoughts before we go into the scoring rounds. He
1: seems a little bit of a backstabber. <laughs> yes. You just don't. Just enter. If, if you're going to, yeah, if you're going to talk about your boss behind his back, you do it. You should do it from the outside, not from the inside. It doesn't seem. Yeah. No, it's, I'm not impressed with that part of his life. And that's the equivalent of putting it on social media. Mm.
2: Exactly. <laughs> Well, with that, let's go ahead and go into our first round, which is the whole picture. Now, this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member, and we can award 10 points total from each of us. Now, for the two of you, your points will be totaled and then divide it by two. So um, together, you can give 10 points total. But just to make it easy, I just wanted to go ahead and give both of you an opportunity to give 10 points and then I'll do the math from there. But what are your thoughts on his overall life and career?
0: I'm torn because he was not very good to Adams, but at the same time, you're saying that his work at the treasury was on the up and up, which is probably the most tempting position somebody could have to take off with a bit of extra money. And he did not do that, even though he left with very little so while I don't like his personality and what he was trying to do with Adams, I am impressed that he was basically trustworthy when it comes to funds for the government.
2: Well, and the fact that he kind of moved through so many positions, you know, he he started, his family was prominent in Connecticut. But mm-hmm. the fact that he made a name for himself in national politics and remained there for so long and then had kind of this fall from grace, but ended up having this successful state career afterwards. You know, he's got a lot going on.
1: Mm -hmm. What do you think, Lucy? Yeah, I felt the same that he, um, yeah, he does seem to be a trustworthy person financially, but not necessarily personally or politically. um, Mm -hmm. um, I feel I don't like him. I don't know if that counts for anything. (laughs) He's a likeable person, but that's not really what you're asking. Um, Yeah, I mean, I suppose we don't know a lot about what he was – I mean, I suppose the fact he was re-elected nine times implies either that he was extremely trustworthy and people trusted him in Connecticut or that he was so corrupt that he was, he was um, diddling the system. So I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps I'm just being cynical. I think I would probably give him a seven.
0: I don't like his personality, but he did stand up for the taxpayer saying, hey, we don't have the money to do this. And he wasn't willing to fiddle with the books in order to find that money. Mm. And I think that's actually
1: a good trait. And the fact that he was going against Hamilton to do that showed, you know, a, he had a little bit of backbone, which wasn't really, mm-hmm. didn't seem to be the case to start with. No, not at all. Um, I think I'd go with a six. Yes, he was trustworthy financially, but I didn't, yeah, you know, I didn't like the way he... Acted politically,
2: but I suppose I'm really torn as well. mm. Oh, go ahead.
1: I was just thinking. I suppose that only represented a small part of his whole career, though, didn't it? That I mean, the rest of his career was on a local level. So perhaps the bigger picture is better than that one small part of it. Mm -hmm. Six. Yeah, I'm
2: I'm really torn on because it I mean there's so much and I know with some of the other categories we'll we'll be able to dive more into it. There is so much. He really doesn't come across as likable, but the fact that he moves up so much, he had folks who you know, recommended him for this position in the federal government back in the day and, you know, that he managed to come back and be a governor for, you know, win re-election nine times. It does seem like there was something, you know, folks felt that he was a good public servant and you don't always get that. You don't always get somebody who, at least folks have some modicum of trust for. And even with Adams, the fact that Adams retained Walcott, maybe he shouldn't have, but the fact that he had at least the confidence in Walcott that he could be professional in his duties.
0: You don't have to like somebody for them to be good at their job.
2: Exactly. So I think... I think I am going to go for a seven. And with your respective six and seven divided by two, add it my seven, we are now at 13.5 points. But now we'll see how many he gets in the next category, which is the go-getter. This round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And again, just like before, 10 points. Maximum.
0: And we are not to consider his time in the governorship rule.
2: No, this is just about his impact as a cabinet member.
0: I would think this has to be fairly high because he was influencing the president. I mean, he managed to prevent a lot of spending that Hamilton was pushing for, but it's just, Him going to Hamilton and saying you need to attack him is what's really.
2: Well, and, and especially, I think that one thing we do need to take into consideration here is, you know, he did eventually, and and this does happen, I think with everybody. And when they're in a new role, you know, you, imposter syndrome is real. Oh, can I really do this? Okay. I'm going to rely on, you know, maybe somebody else's opinion for a bit until I get comfortable with it. And we do see this point where it Mm -hmm. seems like he's finally comfortable with his role as secretary of the treasury, but it took a while for him to get there. And in the meantime, he was just, you know, Hamilton would write out his instructions and he,
0: he was a parrot.
2: Yeah, he was a parrot. And so, you know, does that impact how we, you know, what does that, do for how we look at his impact in the cabinet, because was it really him, or was it more Hamilton? You know, how much of it was authentically Walcott?
1: He was for peace when everybody around him seemed to be for war, and including Hamilton. So, I mean, that that shows, yeah, he was he was willing to take an opposite view to other people, which is quite brave. Plenty of people just kept, just go along with the majority, don't they? Do we know how long he was under Hamilton's thumb for his
0: full term?
2: McHenry wrote to Hamilton about um, Walcott kind of disturbing efforts for building up the army. It was uh, that letter was June 26, 1799. So at that point, he had been in the cabinet for. Quick math. So that was just over
0: four years. And he was only in for another year. So the majority of it, he was just Hamilton's puppet. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give him a two just because he finally found his own voice, but really he didn't have one.
1: I think I'll go a little bit higher because he did, because he stood out again for peace against war. Which is always a good thing, I think. Um, peace is better than war. I would have thought. Yes. So I'll give him a th- three. So I've not gone massively higher, but <laughs> hmm. yeah. I mean, he, he was a mouthpiece for Hamilton, so yeah, three.
2: Yeah, and and that is you know, and and granite, you know, if you were going to be a mouthpiece for anybody, as the Treasury Secretary Hamilton is seen as being one of the great Treasury Secretaries. You know his his scheme for the public credit and the the federal budget. It's it's something that most folks couldn't have done. So if you're going to be a mouthpiece for somebody's Secretary of the Treasury, you know, yeah, okay, you could, you could definitely do worse. But that does. Need to be taken into account. I, I'm going back to something you said, Michelle, and talking about his impact that he, he really was influential and, and he was, you know, how much of it was really him, but it was him in the position.
1: Yeah. I suppose if he's got the job, it's not Hamilton hasn't got the job. He's mm-hmm. got the job, hasn't it? So he's, he's doing mm. the influencing in the in the cabinet
2: yeah even though the influence wasn't necessarily always positive it was still he he had a large role in the mm. cabinet
0: i just struggle with the fact that it wasn't his opinions that he was pushing forward it was somebody mm. else's which again, turns him into a
1: tool of somebody else. But does that matter? I mean, if, you're, if this round is about influencing.
2: Hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to go. I think I'm going to give him a
0: 3.5. Ooh, we haven't done any points before. No, like no, that's too Half <laughs> points or anything. <laughs>
1: We stick with easy math. <laughs> yeah, too complicated in the end. <laughs>
2: that, that's why I have a spreadsheet set up.
1: <laughs> I know on our, on our podcast, you can hear us going, Devon 43. And then we usually come up with two numbers. <laughs> yep. Quite often.
2: <laughs> and, and so I think that's, you know. There was so much conflict and at times his influence wasn't as great. And I think taking into consideration that so much of it came from Hamilton, I think I feel good with that. I, I think that it does acknowledge that he had an influence. It wasn't always good and it wasn't always him per se versus you know, it, it wasn't necessarily his ideas. It was more acting as a proxy. So I, I think I'm comfortable with the 3.5, which gets him up to, we are now at 19.5 points. And now we have an opportunity to remove points because we are in the hot seat round. This round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. The disgrace doesn't have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet, though I think we do have something to discuss there. And we can each take away up to 10 points.
1: I think this is actually going to save him. How much was he involved in getting getting the um, owner judge back, the slave? Was he very much involved in it or was he peripheral? So he was really
2: acting kind of as a, Kind of acting as a go-between between between the president. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) As he did so many times. Um, He was acting as a go-between between President Washington and the customs official on the ground. But he, from all indications, and it could be that there's something that we're missing, but it doesn't seem like he really objected to being in this role or that he said, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this. You kind of carry forward with this plan and and I think that is something that we do need to take into consideration.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean we are talking about Washington here. I mean how many people did say to Washington, I don't think you're doing the right thing? <laughs> <I> mean, because...
2: <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I mean you can't you can't underestimate that.
0: I'm trying not to use my own sensibilities because slavery was endemic there there was no way around it and there was laws in place to prevent them from running away personally i'd like to give him negative a thousand (laughs) but just for that if we take out modern sensibilities i think all we can think of is the fact that one he was helping slavery um two he was willing to use his position to be able to find people to help get her back under the cover of not really bringing it to a legal situation where George Washington would then be under scrutiny for trying to retain a slave. Uh, The other problem is him getting Hamilton and providing information to Hamilton for him to attack Adams, which isn't that bad. It's despicable, but it's not, it's not the same as if he had embezzled money from the treasury. Like it's more of a moral, I don't know, almost a social oops than really I did something illegal. I just keep getting stuck on the fact that he was trying to bring back a slave. I think I'm actually going to go for an eight and and bring him down quite a bit because of that. Even though it was endemic, he was still skirting what should have been done, and he was supposed to be in a position of trust,
1: and that's hard for me to swallow. Hmm. I think it's so hard to look at anything to do with slavery without modern goggles on, really, isn't it? That but- people wouldn't have seen it in at all the same way at that time.
0: I'd like to say they wouldn't, but there were already anti-slavery movements. Yes, yes. So I think we do have to take into account that some people were dead against it.
2: Mm. Well, and and also that this was, you know, and this is really one of the only instances we see this of Walcott, but this was using a public office, Mm for what was a personal issue. Yeah. matter, you know? Yeah. I mean, even if you take out the slavery, the public?
1: sorry, if even, even if you take out the moral, your own moral attitude to the slavery, if it was something entirely different, maybe, maybe it was an object he owned rather than a person. Yes. He's still doing it in, well, I suppose Washington's doing it in an underhanded way and using him to do it. So he's, he's more of a sort of, um, facilitator isn't he which and something that's extremely underhanded yeah so i think maybe i did rate that a little too hard i don't know i was going to go pretty high (laughs) slavery (laughs) it is slavery yeah that's wrong and also yes i'm going to the press against the person you're meant to be backing up Whatever your opinion of them, if you don't approve of the, what they're doing, you resign and then attack them from the outside. You don't nibble away at it from the inside. No, I think uh, seven or eight, especially since Adams wasn't
0: doing anything horrific.
1: Yeah, I think I think uh, yeah, I think it's quite high. Well, since we've got 0.5, I'll go for a 0.5 since we don't get to do it at, at, at home, so to speak. I'll go for a 7.5. <laughs> yeah.
2: And that's, it really does, and, and this is always a category, you know, with Walcott, we don't have the discussion of him being an active slave owner. But the Ona Judge case is, to me, it's, and I I did an entire episode on this because it is such an important story. it, It talks so much about the system of enslavement of this, this really weird place that the nation was in and, in Washington navigating these, these waters. And this is one place that, you know, we, we think of George Washington, the, the marble figure. And this is a very, this represents a flaw, a part of Washington that really isn't that admirable. And, you know, this idea of George Washington as the the public figure, the, the public servant. And here we've got the system being utilized to handle a private matter for George Washington, which also involved re-enslaving somebody.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, few people did question Washington at the time, but Walcott should have. He should have said, you know, maybe this isn't proper. There is an actual law on the books that you can you can seek legal recourse. This is extra legal. He didn't. So that's important to note to me. Um, also, his tenure and, and Lucy, you made the perfect point. You know, if you don't agree with the president that you're serving under, you resign. Instead, he stuck around and he exerted influence in complicating matters, you know, he, to, to obstigate what President Adams was trying to do. And, you know, yes, in some ways, and, and even though we look back at the Adams presidency and we see, you know, no, he, he really was doing some good things in spite of his cabinet they really saw it as, well, this is an awful president. He's doing, he's getting everything wrong. And so you can use the excuse that, you know, they thought maybe they could continue to influence. Maybe they could prevent things from going too far off, but it just, it really doesn't, if you're going to serve under somebody, you either get with the program or you get out and Walcott didn't. Um, I think that I'm not going to go quite as high as the two of you just because, you know, I want to, a, I think we're getting to a good place in terms of the points that should be taken off from him for this, but also I will go ahead and note to Walcott's credit, you know, we're going to be talking about some cabinet members that do utilize their positions for personal gain i
0: was just thinking about that and thinking i went way too hard yes <laughs> and who have slaves of their own yeah and he didn't take away he didn't embezzle money he mm. didn't actually do anything criminal and i'm positive there are going to be others out there that do
1: yeah i think that oh, yes. word slavery <laughs> <is> sort of.
0: <laughs> yeah it's that it's that concept that really hits hard um I think I'm actually going to drop mine down to say a, a five and put him right in the middle. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm going to drop a little bit actually, but I'm going to go. I'm not going to drop much. I think I'll go seven because, yeah, there are a few things I don't. I just, I don't think he should have done. I think he was quite a weak character, for mm-hmm. so maybe it's not his fault. Can't help weakness, I suppose. Can you? <laughs>
2: Well, that, that is also something to take into consideration, you know, the fact that he really, you know, here you're in this position of prominence and it took him a while before he finally reached the point, hey, you know, I've got to say so on things too. And here's what I think, yeah. you know you're a cabinet member. You're supposed to be putting forward your opinions. You're supposed to be the advisor to the president. And he really didn't act in that means for most of his tenure.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So I think I am, I'm going to go with a five, 5.5 5 for him. I think a little over half. I think that gets us to a good place for him. Okay. So with that settled, we now have a couple more places where Walcott can pick up some points. First of all, with his tenure of office. And so this is the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. And so with Walcott, his tenure was from February 3rd, 1795 To December 31st, 1800. Rounding that, we get him six points. Then there are a few bonus points that we have available. Now, the first bonus point is if a cabinet member served in more than one full time cabinet position. He did not, he only served as Secretary of the Treasury, so he doesn't earn that one. But he does earn a bonus point because he served as a full time cabinet member in more than one presidential administration. And in this case, it was in the same role. He carried forward as Secretary of the Treasury from from Washington to Adams. But he did not become president, so he does not earn the last bonus point. And thus, we end up with a total for Oliver Walcott Jr. of 15 points. But now, we have one final question to ask. Lucy and Michelle, after all I've shared about walcott's life and career and what we've discussed do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars
1: no
0: he's he hasn't got the strength of character only if he's going to be a puppet for hamilton (laughs) (laughs) so no
2: no hamilton's already got his own seat (laughs) (laughs) Hamilton's already got his own seat. So he doesn't need Walcott to hold one farm.
0: (laughs) No, definitely not.
2: I I agree with your assessment. And this was, this was really an interesting one. And I was, I was so thankful to have the opportunity because, you know, in doing the Washington and Adams administrations, covering those in the narrative series, Walcott was all over the place, but it, I couldn't really, I didn't really have an opportunity to get more of a sense of him. And while, you know, there's still so much out there that we really don't know about him, I think we did. I think this was a good exercise in understanding him a little more, understanding his role in this complicated time in national politics. So thank you so much, Michelle and Lucy, for joining me on this journey.
1: No, he was an interesting person. Just because he, just because we said no, it doesn't. Uh, he was an inter- He 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 reminds me of we have got a character that we did in our podcast called John De La Pole, and he he sort of went with it. <laughs> he went with everything. He just sort of accepted it, and we felt that it was good to have done him because he represented the way most people would have thought. You know, I'll just keep my head down. I'll just keep, my, and I feel with uh, Walcott. He was probably acted the way most people did. The majority, yeah. Way. You listen to the yeah. people that you feel are above you and keep quiet a bit <laughs> about your own opinion.
2: Well, and it is so funny that you, it is so funny that you say that, Lucy, because <laughs> prior to this, I was actually thinking. I was like, okay, well, who is most like Walcott that y'all have covered thus far? And I
0: thought of John De La Pole.
1: <laughs> we have to keep apologizing for him. Oh man!
0: And I was so excited when I pulled John DePole.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm doing a John De La Pole now, and he's he's going to be a damn sight more interesting than your John De La Pole, I think, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I thought he was, Walcott was an interesting
0: uh, character. Yeah. Ooh, I wonder if you did his father, if it would be the same as our John de la Pole, where the father was really interesting, but the son kind of <laughs> eh, went with the flow.
2: It, it w- really would be interesting. Of course, we can't do it for this series because he w- <laughs> never ended up as a cabinet member. But if anybody explores the life of Oliver Walcott Sr., I'd love to hear more about him because I feel like we just got some brief snippets and taste of him um, in this. But yeah, it's, it's so fascinating and especially seeing stories like this the generational stories. Um, and we will have some more of that. You know, we, we do have some cabinet members that are part of prominent political families. And so it'll be interesting to see how those folks compare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for joining us. And please everybody out there, once you get done listening to this episode, please, if you are not already following Tutoriferous, go and check them out. Um, Where can folks find you on social media?
0: We are Tudoriferous at Facebook, at Tudoriferous on Twitter and Instagram, and Tudoriferous at gmail.com.
2: And on WordPress. Be sure to follow them. And we will have uh, links on the um, page for this episode on the website. And I will be sharing stuff on social media. So be on the lookout for that. Michelle and Lucy, thank you so much again.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having us. This was great. Mm. It's nice not to have to do any of the research. (laughs) And I
2: promise there is no quiz. Oh,
1: thank goodness. (laughs) Oh, why we got ourselves into that, I I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And why we don't drop it. (laughs) Oh, it's here to stay now.
2: (laughs) I always feel for y'all at the beginning of every episode. (laughs) I'm like, I'm glad I don't do this.
1: (laughs) That's just complete humiliation. (laughs) It is humiliation. It is.
2: (laughs) But I hope no humiliation on this episode. (laughs) And on that note, thank you so much to our listeners for joining us. And until next time, stay safe and healthy. Be kind to one another. And take care, dear friends.
0: Goodbye.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo Saxon England podcast where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.